Hello, Lewis fans, and welcome to the Mere Lewis Podcast. My name is Thornton. And my name is Taylor. We're two brothers who enjoy C.S. Lewis and want to take themselves and others on a journey through his writings. Yeah, so Taylor, how excited are you for this journey that we're about to embark on? I am personally very excited. I have always loved C.S. Lewis, and I am really just looking forward to maybe giving people a a perspective of him that they might not have gotten before, or maybe just something a little more uh, comprehensive, because that's something that really helped me understand where his motivations came from and why he wrote the things he wrote, things like that. I am just really excited to dive in and to even learn more, because he has so much to offer, so much to offer, and I'm just, I'm really excited for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a good excuse to sit and, and read some C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and yeah, talking about it with someone else always uh, in, uh, illuminates things. Oh yes, so that's for sure. Yeah, so it's it's gonna be interesting, and yeah, it's it, like I said, it's nice to have something to to help motiv- motivate mm-hmm. us. Very true. Now, if we're gonna explore Lewis's life, let's see. Yes. Um, during his sixty-five years on Earth, he fought in a world war. He lived through another one. He wrote over 30 plus works in eight genres with 40 million copies in print. He was a fellow and a tutor at Oxford and a chair at Cambridge. He was a son, a brother, a husband, stepfather, teacher, student, and he he was a friend. He's considered one of the most influential writers in the 20th century and the most important Christian writer of the time. Yeah, for the, those who are listening at home, if you're wondering why he said 30 plus, it's because no one really agrees on how many things Lewis actually wrote. Putting Even putting aside his mountain of letters, articles, speeches, etc., which I don't think we could ever dream to, you, I don't think you and I, Taylor, could ever dream to get through. Um, you would think that the number of his books he published would be an absolute, but I found numbers ranging all the way from 34 to the mid-40s. I guess, like a lot of different things, it's how, it's how you count them. Well, what we do know is that he was born on the 29th of November in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland, as Clive Staples. It was a childhood that he decides, it was in his childhood, excuse me, that he decides to be called Jack, which is how his friends and family referred to him for the rest of his life. And I find that, I found it very interesting to find out to, to know that his name was Clive Staples as like growing up, it was C.S. Lewis. And I always just, it was always C.S. Lewis and I never actually put it together that C and S meant Mm -hmm. something. And I heard Clive Staples. It was very, very weird experience. Yeah, it's certainly an old name. Very old name, I'd say, but it's still influential nonetheless. In 1905, his family moves out of Belfast to the home that they built outside of the city named Little Lee. An Irish nursemaid named Lizzie Endicott taught Lewis Irish fairy tales. And due to his mother, him and his only sibling and older brother, Warney, read a lot. Yeah, a, a quote I found from Lewis uh, from his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that that is about this time in his life, I, I really love. He said, and I quote, there were books in the study, books in the drawing room, books in the cloakroom, Books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing. Books in the bedroom. Books piled high as my soldier, a shoulder, 
in the cistern attic, books of all kinds. Living in Ulster, which is the historically Protestant portion of the UK, he was steeped in the Catholic and Protestant divide. This probably affected him greatly, and some speculate that this may be why he didn't become a Catholic upon meeting Tolkien and converting, and probably why he focused so much on mere Christianity, the mere part of Christianity. In 1908, Lewis's mother, Florence, dies of cancer in August, and only two weeks later in September, he is sent to boarding school in England. When I first heard about that, I was shocked, and I thought that was actually a little cruel. But, but before she passes away, though, she gives him and Warney Bibles with the words, From Mommy with Fondest Love, 1908, written inside them. Lewis said, and I quote, All settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. From 1910 to 1914, Lewis bounces around boarding schools. He hates them, and the only thing that helps him through is warnings with him. What really turns him off to these schools, though, are two things. One, the Fadden system, and two, their emphasis on athletics. The Fadden system is akin to fraternity hazing, where older boys would initiate the younger ones through little tortures, which would turn quite diabolical. And he spends a, a majority of his autobiography surprised by joy about this time in his life. You see, the fagging system was not allowed in libraries, though. So because of this and Lewis's awkwardness in the athletic domain, it's no surprise he found his solace in books and in the library. In 1913, though, Warney leaves and they only get to see each other on holidays, which I'm sure was a big hit to Lewis. I know it was a big hit to Lewis. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I guess fortunately for them, they were able to maintain their, their great relationship later in life. But yeah, during this time, they didn't get to see each other as, as much as they mm. would like. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Lewis's beginning years of boarding school are where he also develops his atheism. The schools taught the love of England and the love of Christ in hand in hand, which left quite a sour taste in Lewis's mouth. 1914 brought Lewis to Surrey where he was tutored by W.T. Kirkpatrick. This finally happened after Lewis pleaded many times for his father to transfer him out and then finally threatened suicide. Yeah, for three years, he was, he was quite settled with the Kirkpatricks, with Mrs. Kirkpatrick feeding and taking care of him, sort of like a, a surrogate mother, while W.T. gave him a rigorous education in the liberal arts. Lewis called W.T. Kirkpatrick the great knock because of his skill at knocking the sense, the nonsense <laughs> out of you. The knock was also an atheist who reinforced Lewis's beliefs. The knock made, makes a point to make time for Lewis to read what he wants, a theme that I have seen among many great minds. The great knock said, and I quote, he read more classics than any boy ever had. All he cares about is studying. Lewis reads Fantasties by George MacDonald in 1916, which Lewis says, and I quote, baptized his imagination. The book shows him the beauty of fairy tales and fantasy. Lewis says he quotes George MacDonald in everything that he wrote. If we're not sick of each other by the end of his journey, Thornton, we could maybe read Fantasties and see what Lewis was talking about. I'm curious. 
Yeah, it would be it would be interesting. Yeah, we'll definitely have to put that in the miscellaneous category. That that would be fun to read. But yeah, in 1917, for Lewis brings a whirlwind of change. He begins his studies at Oxford in April, then volunteers to join the army as in and is commissioned in September as a second lieutenant and is in the Somerset Light Infantry. Some people frame this as a brave thing that Lewis did, but from the Lewis letters I read, he only did it to avoid being drafted and avoid the stigma that that provided. He would have avoided joining the army if he could. Two months later, in November, he goes to the front lines. This next part, I am surprised I have not heard more about. He inadvertently captured 60 Germans prisoner, although it, it seems the circumstances surrounding this capture were serendipitous and, and lucky. I know that when I learned about that, I thought that was so crazy. Had I had I had not heard about yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I thought it might have been like apocryphal, but he even mentions it in his autobiography. Right. Right. And it's and that just got, I don't know. seems kind of weird to me that. But I mean, shoot, if it's. It was in his book and everything. I mm, very interesting, yeah. especially saying how seeing how he said he says many times he was never athletically inclined or yeah. anything like that, but he managed to take down sixty Germans or at least keep, yeah. them, uh, keep them prisoner. Very interesting. Yeah. If we have like infinite amount of time in the world, it would be interesting if we could go through like the old British military records to see see what they say. Yeah, to see exactly what happened. That would be interesting. Yeah. Maybe for another time. Maybe another time. In 1918, a mortar lands nearby, and Lewis receives shrapnel wounds to several parts of his body. The mortar killed a dear sergeant who was kind of acted as a father figure to Lewis. And the mortar killed a gentleman named Johnson, who Lewis got along very well with and had similar reading tastes. And Johnson would have probably become an inkling had he had survived. Paddy Moore died, too, which we'll talk more about here in a minute. Lewis had complicated feelings about the war. He felt those surviving World War I were, in quote, moral and physical weeds. And he just wanted to serve honorably, survive, and get back to his academics. During an academic meeting after the war, Lewis recalls someone reading the minutes from the last meeting several years prior. And he said, I quote, I don't know any little thing that has made me realize the absolute suspension and waste of these years more thoroughly. He did say that it did provide one benefit, quote, it forced us to consider our own mortality. He returns to Oxford in 1919, where he publishes Spirits in Bondage under the pseudonym Clive Hamilton. It was a book of poetry that received a tepid response at best. He loved Oxford, though, and he knew he was among his people. Owen Barfield, a man who would become an inkling, began to challenge his atheism and assumptions, and also his chronological snobbery. Lewis said, and quote, he has read all the right books, but got the wrong thing out of every one. <laughs> Lewis begins to take old literature more seriously, it's amazing Lewis didn't get swept up in the cynical mood of a lost generation. Yeah. In 1920 to 25, takes Lewis through his studies at Oxford, where he wraps up several honors and begins to tutor and teach. During this time, he casts off 
his, quote, stern atheism. Now, in 1921, Lewis moves into Patty Moore's mother's house. Patty Moore, he was another soldier that Lewis served with. They, they weren't good friends the way Johnson and Lewis were, but Lewis and Moore made a promise that if either of them died, the other would take care of their family. And as stated, Moore died and Lewis kept his promise. And some would argue, and then some. <laughs> they lived several decades together with others moving in, too, like Mrs. Moore's daughter and Warney, Lewis's brother. Depending on whose letters you read, Mrs. Moore was a, either a perfectly nice lady or an overbearing mother type. And if you listen to the Focus on the Family's Lewis at War radio play, they do not portray Mrs. Moore well. Lewis's nickname for Mrs. Moore was Minto, since that was one of her favorite candies. Beyond the closeness that giving a nickname implies, though, we won't speculate about the limits of their relationship. Yeah. Lewis published another book of poetry in 1926 called Dimer, which received a similar response to his earlier book of poetry, Spirits. And in 1929, Lewis's father dies in Belfast. Although Lewis and his father didn't have the best relationship, they did interact and the death makes him think more of the afterlife. Warney by now has converted to Christianity. That year, Lewis becomes a theist, but not yet a Christian. During 1931, specifically 19 September of that year, Tolton and Dyson helped Lewis see how world myths point to Christ. They stayed up until 3 or 4 a.m. talking to Lewis about Christianity. Lewis sees Christianity as a one myth among many, but Tolkien and Dyson argue that all myths are a copy of the Christian story. And what makes the Christian myth true is the historical fact of Christ's existence, death, and resurrection. This, effect, this affects Lewis deeply. He later confesses belief in Jesus Christ as Son of God, becomes a regular communicant in the Church of England, and this part of his story, we'll discuss more when we read Surprised by Joy. Yes, we'll discuss it much more in depth because he gives a very, um, in a Lewis fashion, very poignant description of what happens. Very cool. Yeah, um, and we'll, oh, sorry, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll also, I guess, talk a lot more about this when we go through the, our first book, The Pilgrim's Redress. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting book. A lot of, a lot of, um, I don't know. A lot of allegory that's very vague, but still, it's very interesting to see, his, yes. to see his fictional portrayal of his life. Very cool. I've, mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of pastors say that you can't argue someone to faith in Christ, that it takes relationship, which I think is true. But if Lewis's story is any model, relationship plus discussion or, or argument can yield powerful results. I mean, Lewis said, and, and I quote, Everything that I had labored so hard to expel from my life seemed to have flared up and met me in my best friends. Everyone and everything had joined the other side. Yeah, I think that's such an insightful quote. Mm -hmm. Very, very powerful. I really like that one. You know, and yeah, recently I've also been uh, poking around and reading a little bit of a, a Hero with a Thousand Faces Ooh. by Joseph Campbell and 
he is all about myths the same way Lewis and Tolkien were, but Campbell purports that Christianity is a, is a myth among many, kind of like the way Lewis thought. Mm. And I haven't found anything yet that shows Campbell's thoughts on Lewis or vice versa. So, but if there's something out there, I would, I would love to know what they thought of each other because they were both living and working around the same time. Mm-hmm. That would be very interesting because especially learning about, I've learned a little bit about uh, Lewis's contemporaries and how they, and the, the, um, the criticisms that they had had for, for Lewis's work. Very interesting. Very interesting. Especially, I uh, forget what her name was. There was a, there was a lady who had a, um, she had a very large criticism on his book, Miracles, the third chapter, I believe, where he, um, where he discusses reason as a, the ability to reason as a um, sort of proof for God. Very interesting. But after Lewis's full conversion in 1933, he publishes and sells 700 copies out of the 1500 in print of the Pilgrim's Regress under his own name this time. Then begins his explosion of publishing. Oh, yeah. In 1936, he publishes an allegory of love, a study in medieval tradition, which is a classic in the field and a must read of serious literature students. In 1938, he published Out of the Silent Planet to, quote, quote, to tempt unsuspecting materialists to contemplate spiritual realities. And in, and in 1939, he publishes A Personal Heresy with E.M.W. Tilliard and A Rehabilitation and Other Essays. World War II then breaks out, but it doesn't slow Lewis down other than forcing him to use scrap paper. No, it, it does not. It does not force him to slow down. There's a lot of titles. He, he published a lot. In 1940, mm -hmm. he actually published The Problem of Pain, which is a, basically a self-described rehash of the traditional arguments against the problem of evil. Because Lewis finds that many people are disconnected from the traditional orthodox beliefs. Lewis also begins lectures to, on Christianity to the Royal Air Force at this time. In 1941, he begins the famous series of 20 talks on BBC, which would eventually become Mere Christianity. Lewis continues to publish throughout the war with Screwtape Letters and a preface to Paradise Lost in 1942, Paralandra and the Abolition of Man in 1943, and That Hideous Strength and The Great Divorce in 1945, right before World War II ends. The Abolition of Man was based on a series of lectures he gave at the University of Durham and is a takedown of the education system of the time. And some people think it's sort of a prophecy that has come true over the, the last several decades. Mm. In 46, he edits George MacDonald, an anthology, followed by the publishing of Miracles and Arthurian Torso, which was a commentary on the poems of his friend Charles Williams and Transposition and Other Addresses each of the respective three years. Yes, in 1950, sees Lewis begin at 52 years old, two of the most well-known and important aspects of his life. He publishes the first of his Narnia series in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and over the next four years published, published the next three installments. In 1950, he also receives the first letter from Joy Davidson, the woman who would become his wife. In 1952, Lewis meets Joy, who is a married Jewish woman 
with communist ties who had converted to Christianity. She had been a writer with some success and was wooed from her atheism to Christianity by Lewis's writings. In 52, Lewis also published Mere Christianity, which was a combination of three separate volumes that were published from 1942 to 1944 that were based on the BBC talks. In addition to The Horse and His Boy, Lewis also published the scholarly English literature in the 16th century excluding drama in 1954. As one can see, the past 20 years of Lewis's life, he jumped back and forth between his three different genres, which kept him busy, but probably also kept him balanced, too. 1955 brings Lewis much due respect as he's elected chair of medieval and Renaissance English at Cambridge. It was a post created specifically for Lewis with the help of Tolkien, since Oxford had not promoted him in relation to his work. It was an open secret that Lewis's vocal religious views kept him from achieving such heights. That same year, he published The Magician's Nephew and Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, with no reference to his future wife, Joy. In 56, Lewis, Lewis marries Joy in civil court as a friend because he wanted to help her and her boys stay in the UK. He published The Last Battle Until We Have Faces, A Myth Retold, the latter of which was his favorite book that he published. A year later, Lewis and Joy realize they love each other and marry at her hospital bed. The next two years bring about some of the happiest moments of Lewis's life as Joy recovers for a short time. Lewis also publishes a reflection on the Psalms, the Four Loves, Studies in Words, The World's Last Night, and other essays. Unfortunately, Joy dies on July 13th from cancer that she had been fighting for years. No. <sighs> it's sad. In 1961, he published A Grief Observed and An Experiment in Criticism. He wrote A Grief Observed not as something to be published, but to, quote, keep from going mad. Mm. After he saw he had enough for a book, he decided to publish it and only put it in his name at the behest of his friends. Actually, Taylor, I can't wait to read that because I've heard mm -hmm. it's quite jarring. And he even makes fun of himself and the things he wrote about in The Problem of Pain. Also, I, we'll maybe have to watch The Shadowlands together because this is a beautiful movie that portrays this time in, in Lewis's life as he meets Joy and, and they go through this, uh, this trial together. Yeah, I'd be very excited to see that. Plus, I love Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, yeah, he's a great actor. He, he did really well in that role. Mm, good. I would assume playing C.S. Lewis might be a little difficult. Yes. The last thing he published while alive is in 1962, titled, They Asked for a Paper, <laughs> although it's written under a pseudonym. And in 1963, after decades of beer, beef, and now a broken heart, C.S. Lewis dies on the 22nd of November, the same day as JFK and, and, Ald and Aldous Huxley. Over the next several years, leading all the way up to until today, several more unfinished books are published, and compilations of his letters and such are released. Tolkien said, and I quote, Lewis was the only author who published more after he died than before. <laughs> Some other things to mention about Lewis's life that weren't mentioned during the timeline. 
during his childhood days, him and Warney created a world called Boxen, which is filled with anthropomorphized animals. They even create a language that they only know. Certainly a dress rehearsal for Narnia, right? Yeah. His best, his first best friend after Warney was a gentleman named Arthur Greaves. They wrote a tremendous amount of letters to each other, and their correspondence is the source of much of our own knowledge of Lewis's inner life. I sort of understand uh, Arthur Greaves as kind of like a, a Ron Weasley character. <laughs> so, uh, from if if anyone out there knows Harry Potter. But yeah, he's sort of someone who doesn't have much effect on the the person's trajectory or their life, but provides the main character a psychological space <laughs> and and a venue for us to to know more about him. You're harsh on Ron. I like him. Yeah. I'm not saying I don't like him. I'm just saying that I, sometimes I think people think he affects the story a little more than than he than he actually did. But I don't know. I just that that is a discussion for another day. Yeah, I'll probably indeed. I'll probably edit that out. <laughs> yeah. We also hardly mentioned the Inklings, who were a major influence on Lewis and was a workshop for Lewis's work all the way up to the Narnia series. For more information on the Inklings, I highly recommend the Fellowship, the Literary Lives, the Literary Lives of the Inklings by Philip and Carol Zaleski. Very good book. Yep. Of the Inklings, Lewis and Tolkien are the most well-known, and their friendship and effect on each other is legendary. Lewis was one of, if not the first reader of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and was the one who encouraged Tolkien to continue to pursue it. If, if not for him, we probably would have never have The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien also encouraged Lewis's, Lewis and his faith, professional aspirations, and his writings. They were two sides of the same coin, both loving the same literature and desiring to recreate it. But Tolkien was detailed while Lewis was more exploratory. There was no truer, this was no truer than on their walks, where one wanted to go ahead and get to the destination, while the other wanted to stop and observe every little thing. This natural difference in disposition, the long years together, and the strain of Lewis not progressing in the college ranks while Tolkien did, was probably what led them to grow apart as they aged. One particular sharp crack Tolkien gave Lewis about his work, though, put them on non-speaking terms for a while. Although, thankfully, they rekindled their relationship before Lewis's death. After Lewis died, Tolkien said, and I quote, This feels like an axe blow near the roots. We owed each other a great debt to the other, and that tie, with the deep affection that it begot, remained. Lewis's friendship with his brother Warney was also a mainstay and a significant, a significant influence on him. Warney himself also racked up some accolades. He was a career military officer, achieving the rank of major. He attended the Inklings meetings, too, and, and he wrote several books on French history. He wrote compulsively in his diary. One of his life regrets was that he did not write more in his diary. He was a, a chronic alcoholic. And he was Lewis's closest companion. It was their relationship with their father that grew them so close together. Now to transition, we'll talk about the criticisms of Lewis's work. Yeah, critics of Lewis, they, they abound. I mean... 
they abound now just as they did then. Yeah, when he was alive, his colleagues at Oxford found his evangelizing annoying, as we mentioned, and as and it kept him from ascending the ranks. They were pro- also probably jealous of his commercial success, though. They thought he should just stay in his academic lane, and they thought that Narnia, the whole Narnia series was a waste of time. Yeah. Lewis was also not perfect and had his limitations. Some of his characterizations are off-putting and offensive to some people today. For example, how he portrays Susan in, in The Last Battle has, I guess, I guess, ignited a firestorm on Twitter mm-hmm. every once in a while. And also his uh, characterization of the little brown girls in The Pilgrim's Regress. Yeah, I admit, that, did, that took me off guard when I had first read it. Uh, it was yeah. something that I had to reconcile. Um, but some also took took exception to some of his theological beliefs, too. Paul Stevens of the University of Toronto, he's written that Lewis's mere Christianity, and quote, masked many, masked many of the political prejudices of an old-fashioned Ulster Protestant, a native of middle-class Belfast, for whom British, British withdrawal from Northern Ireland, even in the 1950s and 1960s, was unthinkable. Also, if you try to fit him into any denominational mold, then you will quickly become disappointed. The late Martin Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones, excuse me, who was a staunch evangelical during Lewis's time, doubted whether Lewis was a Christian at all. Yeah. And for as much as I love Lewis's reasoning, sometimes when he illustrates things as either or I sometimes don't think it's that simple, and I can think of other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't understand what exactly what he's saying, but uh, sometimes I don't think it is either or. Right. That is, and that is, I believe that is actually a popular criticism of his work sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Altogether, what draws many, especially Christians, especially American Christians, though, uh, what draws them to Lewis was detailed well in a 1998 article in Christianity Today. Yeah, I really like this article. And mm-hmm. yeah, the, the four reasons that this author mentioned was one, that Lewis was a lay evangelist. As we mentioned, he was a professor and a teacher at Oxford, and he wrote his apologetics and uh, uh, theological works on the side. So he was earning, kind of like Paul, he was earning his salt as, mm-hmm. a, as a laborer, but then evangelizing um, in, in his uh, with his spare time, if you will. Uh, two, Lewis was a brilliant teacher. I think anyone who reads his works can instantly see his, his gift for teaching. Mm-hmm. Even though he specifically says that he is not, he's not the smartest guy. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And then three, Lewis projects a vision of wholeness. And this is probably one of my, favorite things about Lewis is a lot of his works usually have the the more righteous person or the or the the the, good, the best person in, in terms of goodness mm. as the one who has the best lines uh, if you will and mm. um and compared to I know William Blake has a quote that he uh, Blake said that Satan has all the best lines in reference to paradise lost and but Lewis like his his care his characters are wholesome and they're the ones usually who you root for. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth, 
Lewis communicates the goodness of godliness and the reality of God. So yeah, this is kind of related to the the former one, but yeah, Lewis just paints a very compelling picture of heaven and what God's reign in someone's mm-hmm. life looks like. Mm-hmm. I know I read a letters to Malcolm. He paints this beautiful picture of heaven that mm-hmm. sort of transports you and just it just makes you just want what he is describing. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. agree. He was very good at explaining things, especially explaining things in a way that made you really want to understand them. Due to this love of Lewis, there are many references to him in today's culture. At, uh, at Wheaton College, there's a Lewis Museum, which has Lewis's writings, his letters, secondary literature, his writing desk, uh, his table, and a wardrobe. Yes, the wardrobe. Also, in Monrovia, California, there's a stained glass window of Lewis at uh, one of the churches there. In Ireland, there's a C.S. Lewis trail in Belfast. For movies, there's the BBC production of Lewis's Narnia series and the more recent remakes of Narnia series, which started in 2005. There's also the aforementioned Shadowlands, too, which, again, I I cannot recommend highly enough. Mm -hmm. And then... For one, there's this podcast, along with others dedicated to Lewis, like uh, Pints with Jack and The Lamp Post Listener, along with a plethora of one-off episodes. I also found a C.S. Lewis playlist on Spotify called The Legacy of C.S. Lewis, where you can listen to songs inspired by his writings. My favorite were the ones by the Oh Hellos. Um, yes. And if, yes. Oh, I love them so much. If there are any other references that we missed, please shoot us a tweet again at near C.S. Lewis. Okay, now for a little more fun, Taylor. I want us to play a little game. So, <laughs> so as I researched everything I could about Lewis's life, I came across quote after quote of his and I always appreciated his eloquence and insight. And this eloquence and insight reminded me of another famous Brit from around that time, Winston Churchill. Okay. So, so Taylor, I'm going to test whatever skill it takes to distinguish between the two great Brits by giving you a quote and having you tell me which author you think it is. Okay, okay. I haven't studied a lot of Winston Churchill, but I'll give it my best shot. Yeah. So I was reading an article in this, uh, just to build the anticipation. So I was reading an article <laughs> and it was talking about how Americans love C.S. Lewis and Winston Churchill, but apparently in England, they are both sort of like, eh, like they did their thing. They were good <laughs> at it, but like, whatever. Um, so I, yeah, I thought it was interesting that the, the Brits uh, were a lot more lukewarm on these uh, people that Americans just value so highly. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I've never just, heard that before. Yeah, I just read it in one article, so I'd, I'd have to maybe do a little bit more research on it. But um, anyway, I just thought that was, if that's true, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it but, sounds super interesting. Yeah. Okay, so here's the first quote To improve is to change, so to be perfect is to change often. Did Churchill or Lewis say that? Ooh. Hmm. Let me know if you need me to repeat it. 
Go ahead and repeat it. I'm, I need to hear it again. Okay. To improve is to change. So to be perfect is to change often. All right. I'm going to go with my best guess. I'm going to go with my gut here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Winston Churchill. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, very nice. Awesome. Yep. Okay. Next one. This is war. This is what Homer wrote about. That sounds like Lewis. Yep, you got it. Ding, hey, ding. very nice. Ding, okay. ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, so let's see. All right, I, so far, so far, I'm two for two, Thornton. Let's you see are, what yeah. happens. Yep. Okay. Progress for me means increasing the goodness and happiness of individual lives. For the species, as for each man, mere longevity seems to me a contemptible idea. Ooh. So this one has a... It, it's ringing of Lewis for me. It is, but I... Um, I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to go... I'm going to say Lewis. You got it. Ding, ding, yeah! Ding. Very nice. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Okay, so let's see. Next one. Three for three, Thornton. Hit me yeah. with something good. I know you're you're doing well. Uh you shall have me on a certain date, not before. I will die in your wars if need me if needs be, but till then I shall live my own life. You may have my body, but not my mind. Oh, that's Lewis. Yep, that's right. Ding, oh ding, yeah. Ding, ding. <laughs> it just sounds like him. It just has that ring to it. Yep. That dude is funny, 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 funny. And like in most of his works, you'll find something. There's just that little, that little, um, little jab of humor. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Right. Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. Ooh. All right, one more time. Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. All right, this one's this one's hard. Um, I don't even have a gut feeling on this one. Okay, hmm. let's say I'm a shot. I'm a, I'm a shoot in the dark here. Let's say uh, let's say let's say Churchill. You got it. Ding ding ding. Oh man. Huh. Okay, so this will be the last one. Let's see if you can have a perfect game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Without an equal growth of mercy, pity, peace, and love, science herself may destroy all that makes life majestic and tolerable. I'm going to say Lewis. Wah, wah, wah. No, no. The last one. Golly. Yeah. That is a Churchill quote. Oh, Churchill, you dog. Yep. So that, that is from the book, The Hobbit, the A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, which was an excellent book about Lewis's and Tolkien's experience during World War One. Yeah, I actually don't think I've ever read that book. I I really think I saw it one time. I need to look it up. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's a good one. It's a good one. Okay, Lewis fans, thanks for joining us on this walk through Lewis's biography. 
we hope that not only do you understand Lewis's life and the context of his works a little more, but that you get a sense for why we think his vision and his philosophy was important and powerful. Please join us in this in the next episode as we go through the first work Lewis published after becoming a Christian, The Pilgrim's Redress. If you want to connect with us, please hit us up on our Twitter at Mir C.S. Lewis. Until next time, see you later. Thanks.